Hey there, you're listening to Ghost Notes and Friends, the podcast where we talk about music from the inside and out with friends. My name's Noah, you probably know me as Polyphonic. And I'm Corey, and you probably know me better as 12-Tone. Today we're joined by one of my favorite new channels, and it's actually a music channel for once. Do you want to introduce yourself? Hi everyone, my name is Sarah. I run a channel called Sounds Good, and I talk about music history and politics and culture and all kinds of big ideas sort of through the lens of music. Very cool. I think talking about big ideas through the lens of music sucks. I never do that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I know. (laughs) Yeah, it's it really does suck. So speaking of big ideas through the lens of music, can you tell our good listeners what you wanted to talk about with us today? Yeah, so I have been Well, okay, so the pretext to this whole idea is that I've wanted to be a professional musician since I was like a teenager. I've been just totally obsessed with the idea in ways that are good and bad. And I am sort of at a point in my life where I am ready to sort of seriously pursue that goal. And I have been thinking a lot about, you know, what it means to make art that you have to sell and the ways that you know, you have to sort of accept that problem and work within that limitation and just really interested in that, in that question, really, really broadly speaking in terms of, you know, how audiences think about what their expectations of their, the musicians that they like are in regards to that and what it means as a musician to be like, okay, well, you know, if I want to be a professional musician, I have to make stuff that people will want to listen to. And that means that, you know, I'm strongly incentivized to use certain conventions in my music and you know how do I make sense of that also you know do something authentic or just oh just to yeah make something that still feels like it's coming from me yeah I mean it's such a it's such a big question because like in general the kind of mode of music that most people engage with in the modern age is like intrinsically tied to the music industry like our understanding of what a musician is is completely tied to the the professionalization of music that happened with the rise of the record industry in the turn of the century right 100 such a good point yeah and the particular kind of professionalization because we have if you go back further in history like there are people like bach who were definitely professional musicians but it was a very different landscape and the way that you were in that space was almost entirely unrelated to what someone like, say, Taylor Swift is doing today. Absolutely. Yeah, totally. 100%. Yeah, it's super interesting. And even, you know, I mean, I don't know, was was Bach in a sort of patronage uh, setup? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That sort of my understanding. And I'm, I know a fair amount of this history, but I'm not an expert. So I don't want to present myself as too much of an expert. But my understanding is that that sort of patronage model didn't really die off until roughly the romantic, die off, but sort of went away more in the romantic period. Right. But back in the Baroque period when Bach was working, like he, he worked for a couple of different patrons over the course of his lifetime. Okay. But he was someone's employee and his job was to make them music in the same way that their chef's job was to make them food. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's so interesting, right? It seems almost like more, that seems like almost just like a scarier proposition than yeah. uh just because of that, you know, that, that kind of, yeah. I mean, I guess just for my personality, one person too. can yeah. just decide that they don't like you anymore and that's it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Terrifying. Yeah. Well, and, <laughs> and it's so interesting because I mean, I think a lot of the time when we kind of 
look at the music of the past. And and in general, when we look at music, we kind of look at it assuming that it was written without these kind of, you know, monetary forces. Like, like we look totally. at Bach and we listen to like Takata and Fugu and we're like, oh my God, like this is amazing and what a pure expression of art. And it is that, but it is also him making art that his patron liked. And maybe his patron was like, like, I don't, I don't know that much about Bach, but maybe his patron was like, hey, Bach, I like anything you do. Just make some good music. But chances are yeah. that's not really, there's not yeah. really that many benevolent benefactors who didn't have, you know, like, like social pressures, cultural pressures. Like there's, there's all of these forces acting on the musician in any given system. So when we look at kind of like musicians today and we're like, oh, you know, like they're, they're just going commercial just to appease the crowd. It's like, yeah. Well, I mean, how else am I going to eat? Totally. Yeah, this is like a thing that gets to that whole like pop music versus art music distinction that I have hated in many different mediums in the past, Mm -hmm. at least podcast form, video form, and Twitter form. So I have strong opinions about this. But anyway, you do see a lot of that where you're like Beethoven, especially like Beethoven was just making music. And to an extent, that's true. Part of what he did was he got like some people in Vienna to pay him basically to not leave Vienna and make music there. Right. And although like the history of that is also complicated, a lot of them didn't wind up paying him what they were supposed to, but that's a whole thing. But the point is that the reason he could do that was because he had established himself as someone worth having around by already having made music they liked. I think that this is the thing that gets lost a lot of the time when we talk about artists making popular music is that, you know, you you get to a certain level, you get to like, again, I, I mentioned Taylor Swift or someone like Beyonce, and Beyonce can basically do whatever she wants at this point. Sure, yeah. Like, it would be very hard for Beyonce to release an album that a lot of people didn't buy, that didn't see a good financial return. Totally. Basically, no matter what she did. Yeah. But the reason she got to that place in the first place was because she was making music that a lot of people liked in certain conventions and doing certain sorts of experimentation. And also, that means that the people who can get to that level are people who want to make certain kinds of totally, music, right? Totally. Like, Beyonce is not going to turn around and make a Mersbo album. Like, yeah, totally. That's not really no. That's not really her thing. I mean, she might. I, I would be interested in hearing that. <laughs> it's a compelling prompt. Yeah. I mean, so this episode is going to come out long after this discussion, but um, I have a video that just came out on my channel today, uh, sort of talking about this. And one of the things I say in my video is basically that, like, you know, the economy, broadly speaking, has an influence on all the music that's being made in it, no matter what the economy is. And that, like, you know, this expectation from fans or something that artists should somehow be able to remove themselves from the forces of the economy that they're making music in, whether it's you know, capitalism in the way that it is now, or like it would have been in Bach's time or in, in Beethoven's time or all the different ways that musicians yeah. have had to find ways to feed ourselves. You know, that expectation is simply incoherent with reality. Like yeah. you have to yeah. just do a cognitive dissonance in order to, <laughs> <laughs> to somehow justify why some of the music that you like you know, somehow is able to transcend these forces, you know, and it just, it just comes down to, to to your point about art music, Corey, like, I think 
it becomes like an aesthetic. Oh, absolutely. A way of of appearing authentic, like using certain aesthetic yeah. choices to have the presentation of authenticity. But you know, it's yeah. kind of like it's a different market. Like the art, the art market is just a different market. <laughs> totally, and it's all it's all kind of arbitrary, anyways, right? Like none of these aesthetic yeah. choices mean that the work itself is more authentic or less subject to these economic forces than other yeah. work. It's just sort of like cosplaying, or it's just like you know, it's like a a certain way of signaling to a certain audience that your work is authentic, but but really, like you know, I I think that pop music can be just as, you know, and any like the, the most calculated or or the most conventional pop music, yeah. I guess, can be just as authentic as any other any other kind of music. Absolutely. It's such a like weird trait of I think I think it exists in other art forms, but not really in the same way yeah. as music. You know, like like there's not people there's not people that are like, oh, you know, that is a well-crafted photorealistic landscape painting. This painter is just selling out and doing what'll appease the crowd. You know, it's like, so you say that, but I know painters. Yeah, what is that about music, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I I mean, I think I think one of the things that frustrates me most about this is the idea that there is somehow like there's some sort of, you know, value put on stuff that is not yeah. commercial where making an incredible mm-hmm. pop song is challenging. It's not easy to make a oh, good exactly. catchy pop song. Like yeah. there's this oh, exactly. mentality that it's like, "Oh, people just like low-hanging fruit." And it's like, "No, to actually hit big, you need something that you need something that has the right amount of familiarity, but also some mysterious thing that the people want and don't know that they want." Yeah, I think the the basic sort of retort that anyone who has ever spent any time doing pop songwriting does whenever Penland's like, oh, pop songwriting is so simple and easy. It's like, you do it. Yeah. You write a hit song. You sell a million records. That perspective is so nihilistic, really, when you think about it, right? Because yeah. it presumes that people who like pop music are stupid and, yeah. and that, that they're easy to please or something like that. And it's like, I just, I think, I mean, I think that there's, an mountain of evidence to the contrary. And also it's just like, what a, what a kind of like depressing life perspective, yeah. like to just, you know, I'm just like people, just because people don't have like the, the sort of like academic training or like the specified interest in like a certain like niche genre of music doesn't mean that they're like any less, you know, it doesn't mean that they're dumb, you know, like, and finding stuff that makes people happy is just as hard, like, or it's just like, it's just as hard to please a large group of people as it is to, to please like a niche audience, you know, like, like an experimental musician might. It's funny because also like a lot of the great experimental musicians are also very good at doing pop. Like you look at, you look at some of the most, I mean, obviously like the, the go-to example for that is the Beatles, but like you look at someone like Brian Eno, right? Like Brian Eno pretty much pioneered the entire field of ambient. And Brian Eno also produced U2 records because he had a sense for this stuff, right? Like, like the two are not mutually exclusive and often a lot of what makes a lot of what becomes pop music was experimental in its time. You know, like like the psychedelic pop sound that defined the sixties, like the beach boys and the Beatles were deeply, deeply experimental. And then that became pop, 
you know? And even like- Yeah. And someone like Jimi Hendrix even. Yeah, absolutely. Totally. Or even pop, or even like what's popular now, like I think- you know, hyperpop yeah, is like, like a hyper-pop. super yeah. experimental genre. Like, yeah, super weird, but like weird. the kids love it. Totally. And it's, a lot of that stuff's really cool. But I think like it's also sort of an elitist attitude that comes from, uh, I'm going to make up a word here, but the academification of music. <laughs> Ooh, I like which, that word. Wow, spicy. I am, <laughs> That's a $10 a word if I've ever heard one. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's a $15 pay word. Pay $10 for that at any yeah. restaurant. Yeah. But, but yeah, like you have these... This idea that you can sort of study and therefore formalize what the rules of music are creates this bias towards music that plays by those rules. And this dates back as most flaws in modern musical discourse does to the 19th century, where you had sort of that was roughly where musicology started to be like a real separate discipline. And so you you have this idea that we're going to nail down this understanding of what makes music great, and that's going to be biased by what's popular at the time. And we have updated that. Like I think that it's a little unfair to say that our like academic understanding of music is still stuck in the 19th century, yeah. but it's not. It hasn't left. No, like it's totally. we've moved, we, like jazz, especially a lot of jazz has become very sort of formalized in those same academic spaces, although not until relatively recently, historically, compared to when jazz started being a thing. Yeah. But, like, we have these we have these ideas, and we like when things look pretty in the graphs that we draw based on these particular <laughs> styles of music. And we project onto that a sort of objective value that says that these things that we can draw pretty graphs to are better. Totally. And they're not, but the graphs are prettier. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting, like, because I feel like, I guess, pop music in that specific term is like a relatively, it's like a modern concept, right? But yeah, it's like, it's hard to understand someone, especially like, you know, with Beethoven and Mozart, it's, it's hard not to think of them as being basically pop musicians also like that's kind of yeah I'm, i'd be curious to know like how how you guys think of that because that's kind of just yeah intuitively and i mean especially like i mean also like listening to their music like it's super it's so like clean yeah. and kind of it just feels it just sounds like pop music to me like it just sounds like yeah. 19th century pop music i think like like so much of what we understand as pop music really does actually legitimately go back to Bach. And that feels like such a pretentious thing to say. (laughs) (laughs) But always back to Bach. Yeah. Well, the other thing, too, is that, like, to some extent, if you are making music with the intention of people enjoying listening to it, you're making pop music. You know, like, I, I don't think... I don't think necessarily all music is pop music. Like, I think there is a lot of very experimental music that's more, yeah. and Corey and I have talked about this, that are yeah. more like thought experiments with sound. Totally. L- like, people like Reich but, and stuff yeah. like that. But even Reich ha- has some stuff. Yeah. No, even Reich, yeah. I don't know. It's pretty... Well, yeah, it depends. Depends on... But yeah, I think not to be the the music theorist, but I do want to push back a little bit on that, on the pop music thing, because I think... It's a good metaphor, right? It's a good analogy to say that Beethoven was the pop music of his time. Mm -hmm. But I do think that it 
there are significant and important differences also in the way that Beethoven and Bach and Mozart operated, which I mean, even between themselves, but also towards pop music today. And a lot of that comes back to, I think, what Sarah was talking about earlier in terms of markets. Because I think an important point I want to make here is that art responds to culture and economic forces are a part of culture. Yeah, exactly. And so the world that Beethoven was operating in is so different from the world that Taylor Swift, Beyonce are operating in. Yeah. I I keep using those two, but that's just because they're both very good. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I also think Taylor Swift and Beyonce are kind of like the go-to examples for pop in our time right now. Sure. Yeah. 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 But I I think you're right. Like, I think that it's sort of like the metaphor doesn't super strongly hold up because I guess pop sort of definitionally is something that is like a part of like modern pop culture and without like things like mass distribution and, you know, media, like the new forms of media are pretty essential to like pop music now. To hear Beethoven, you had to go to a Beethoven concert. Totally. And that I think fundamentally changes because it also makes it more inherently exclusive and it makes it more of a way to show true, status true, that true, you true. went to the Beethoven show true. and you've, you've listened to like his fifth symphony or whatever, whichever symphony. He has some symphonies, you know? Yeah. But you, you can show off and it, and it was, it was a status symbol. Right. It was a way to show that you had the good taste. Right. Like listening to currently popular music at the time was a way to elevate your status because that was not necessarily attainable in the way that, like, no one is going to be impressed that I have access to Taylor Swift's 1989 <laughs> and can listen to those songs. It's not that hard. No. And so it's a different sort of, it becomes this thing that is inherently for the masses. And one thing that elitism has always hated is the masses. Right. <laughs> so. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I guess, like, this sort of like to use a ten dollar word here, a bifurcation of sort of pop and art music <laughs> is a is a modern yeah. phenomenon. But that I guess that's an interesting point that classical quote unquote music was more exclusive, yeah. and that that totally makes sense. I mean, I th- I think it's interesting. Like something that you kind of mentioned in passing during that, Sarah, was also the the nature of the media changes this so much where like right now I'm working on a video about a bunch of traditional pop singers you know like Sinatra and Billie Holiday and Bing Crosby and stuff like that and that is kind of the moment where you have the birth of pop music as we understand it right like like kind of right then and it is completely tied to the technologies available it is completely tied to you know the way that records are being made at the time and that's the first time you're able to mass distribute this because a little before that you did have like the you know selling sheets from tin pan alley but then the I guess modus operandi, to use my $10 word, $10 two words. <laughs> we're, getting um, rich, we're getting rich here today, guys. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but yeah. The, the modus operandi of pop then was actually not really about pop artists. It was about pop songs, and you yeah. would buy these sheets and play them with mm. your friends, right? Yeah. And it was yeah. it was the song itself that was the pop. And then, So interesting. Yeah. And this is like Tin Pan Alley is, I think, a, yeah, like a really yeah. interesting sort of historical phenomenon in that space as well, just because that was the whole thing was it was just 
like a building or a set of buildings. I don't remember, but like just this one space that just was full to the brim with like songwriting pairs and songwriters who would just like sit in rooms and churn out songs. Yeah. And it really didn't matter who they were. Yeah. Yeah. It mattered that like these songs were hits and that was the thing you were getting into. And you saw that as well in like a lot of like doo-wop groups. This was like a thing in in that period as well, where it wasn't so much it wasn't so much songwriters turning stuff out, but you they had so many one hit wonders in that era because the point of that was that a lot of those bands were meant to sound a little bit interchangeable and they were meant to be sort of the same thing, so that you could just get into doo op and then buy all of these albums instead of the industry having to promote and support a star, which would get more and more expensive as that star got more and more popular. Huh, interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think what's really interesting about I'm like really on a traditional pop kick lately, so I'm really interested in this stuff, (laughs) is that you kind of see the coming together of those two worlds where like a lot of the Tin Pan Alley songs and like Broadway songs and stuff like that, right, were were what made up the great American songbook that these artists sang. And it's through these artists where it's like, you know, you kind of originally buy for the song and then as recording technology improves and we get electrical microphones and stuff like that, you're buying for the song and you're getting connected to the person singing it, you know, and you're like, oh, I really like that. And then that's where suddenly there's the pop music incentive for people to be you know, start to be producing their own stuff and doing their own arrangements and writing their own songs and... And starting to own the songs too. Mm. And I mean, and what comes out of that is, like, ironically, like, I find the people that are, that tend to be most anti-pop are rock fans, but it's that, Mm -hmm. it's that financial incentive to write your own songs and be a personality as an artist that birthed rock and roll. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and if you look at like the classic like big rock bands that we think of as revolutionary, like you just finished up Led Zeppelin month. Yep. And you know, Beatles are another classic example of this is like if you look at their early stuff, they were not that different from what other people were doing at the time. They were just really good at making stuff that sold and that bought them into a space where they could start doing stuff that was more and more out there. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I I mean, I think a lot of the, even a lot of the more out there stuff, especially with the Beatles, I mean, the Beatles are the greatest pop group ever in my mind. Like Paul McCartney is Mm -hmm. a pop songwriter like no other. And even when the Beatles were getting weird and experimental, you know, Paul McCartney was writing, like doing crazy arrangements and then writing Penny Lane, which will be stuck in my head for a week because I just said the name of the song. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, true. Yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, getting to this sort of bringing back to this sort of idea of the aesthetic of authenticity, like, I think that's something that, you know, I don't want to say like people who buy into this idea, but something that's sort of, I think that is a part of this sort of logic that I think people don't realize is like, that a lot of the music that sort of has that aesthetic is yeah. like as you've said already, you know, like it's like it's pop music still. It's just yeah. like yeah. has some sort of different characteristic to it. Like I think that I mean, there's certainly like an academic version of this too, where people are like, oh no, it's like Stockhausen, who's the good 
yeah. music or something. But the, I most, think... the most authentic music is written for four helicopters. <laughs> yes, definitely. Yeah, it's the best. Was that that wasn't was that Stockhausen? It was Stockhausen. Yeah, it was Stockhausen. Yeah, I thought I thought it was Stockhausen. Was it four helicopters? Yeah, I think it was four helicopters. I mean, he's written some he's written some bangers in my opinion. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> uh, but <laughs> I think one of the ultimate examples of these sorts of artists that you're talking about, Sarah, is Nirvana. Right, like Nirvana, yeah, totally. the entire the entire kind of like branding apparatus around Nirvana brands Nirvana as like this fiercely countercultural. But Kurt Cobain knew he was making pop music. Oh yeah, and totally. he he wrote really Kurt good Cobain pop, liked music. pop music. Yeah, totally. yeah. One thing, and I think this is something that can also speak to like our experience as people talking about music is that authenticity doesn't really come across on camera, like real authenticity. Yes. And so at least when I'm making my videos, I'm performing authenticity. Totally. I'm putting on a voice that I think conveys my excitement, my actual real excitement that I actually have better than the voice I would naturally use to describe (laughs) it does. Right, right. And you see that a lot in music too, where like there are these certain things that we associate with sounding authentic that in a lot of cases are just, specific vocal techniques you can learn to do. Yeah, totally. Like, especially vocals, but a lot of other instruments as well. But like, if you think about like the cry break, like the cry break where you sort of flip up to falsetto, like a split second on a note, and it sort of sounds like you're starting to cry. Yeah. That's just a thing you can learn to do. Yeah, totally. And like, it's, it's not a thing that means you're feeling sad, but it's a way of telling your audience, like, you know, I feel sad, which may be authentic. It may be a real pain that you're feeling. Totally. Or it's just you doing a cry break because you know how to physically do it. It's not that hard. Another thing that I sort of talk about in my video is that, like, I don't want to say that authenticity is just, like, completely fake or that it doesn't matter at all. No. But just sort of that, like, as as you say, that there's sort of... Authenticity is maybe more about the relationship between the creator and the thing that they make. And, like, it's important, I think, to creators to have an authentic relationship yeah. to what we do. And I think that, like... If there was no, you know, I, I mean, not to like paint with too wide of a stroke or whatever, but, um, you know, I think if there was no authenticity to something that somebody made, it would probably yeah, be hard for people to like it. Yeah. But that like, you know, at the end of the- Tell that to Arnold Schoenberg. <laughs> <laughs> but no, go, go on. Why do you think he was authentic <laughs> or inauthentic? <laughs> he was just a grumpy oh, okay. he's just a grumpy fucking guy yeah <laughs> authentically grumpy hell yeah get wrecked Schoenberg I, I, I mean I, have you seen his pictures like holy shit he just does not look like a happy yeah I mean fair enough but I think that's part of it is that like the reality especially like when you think of it's so funny because people in, in our current kind of like musical world where the big moneymaker right now is touring and live performances, right? And mm-hmm, yeah. mm-hmm. you think someone goes out there and plays a sad song every night in a different city for four yeah. months straight and authentically yeah. feels those emotions every time? Totally. No, it's, like, so, yeah. it's a completely yeah. inhumane I think they have to get like sad and then happy and then angry in yeah. that specific order, or did they just have a set list? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, totally. But yeah, I think to, to sort of go back to a thing Sarah was saying, I think authenticity, I think, is really important in sort of the relationship of an artist to their own work. Yeah. And I think it's also important in the relationship of the work to the listener. Yeah. But I think it's important in different ways. And I don't think those two types of authenticity are necessarily communicating, right? Totally. Like, 
I think that you can gain a lot from an artist putting something of themselves in the song. Yeah. I think that that is meaningful. And I also think that it's meaningful for you to be able to get something from the song for it to authentically speak to your experience. Totally. But I think that those are two different kinds of authenticity that aren't necessarily going to be in sync with each other. Yeah. And I think that what we're looking for, totally. we say we're looking for the former, but we're actually looking for the latter. Totally. We can't actually, we can't see the former. The former is invisible. Totally. It's just the only thing we can actually judge is our experience and whether we feel like it's authentic. Oh, and that's, that's what so we want good. and that's important. Yeah. I wish I said that in my video. <laughs> I love the way you articulated that. That's really, that's Thank really you. elucidating. Yeah. Feel free to steal it for future videos. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'll add an addendum. <laughs> One of the goals of an artist often is to elicit that authentic yeah. reaction, right? Like that, and yeah. and the way that you elicit you feel like you're speaking to me, and and the way that you elicit that is by using often formalized techniques. Like everyone knows yeah. what yeah. a good key change does, right? Like like yeah. like you said, the the cry voice, like that's. The entire craft of music is using kind of this language of, and you were you were kind of mentioning this earlier, Sarah, like using this language of understood convention to, yeah. you know, translate that authenticity, you know, draw that authentic reaction out of your crowd. But it's always going to be craft. I mean, I, to use like a bit of a, a different metaphor, but like like my background is in journalism, and everything in journalism is edited. You know, it it is you yep. are trying to tell the truth like you're not you're not trying to edit to make stuff up unless you're a certain kind of journalist. Yeah. Yeah. But <laughs> like you will air an interview with someone and you will cut out words they say to better convey the emotion that they are trying to say, you know, totally. like because yeah. if there's a bunch of us and ams, even this literal conversation that you are listening to now as a listener between the three of us so will have true. been heavily edited. Shout out to Caleb. Yeah. So, so like that's that's what a musician is doing with a lot of these kind of conventions and leaning into things. It's they are editing for a sort of common language that we understand that makes us you know feel these things or think these things or whatever the goal may be. Totally. Yeah. So awesome. I'm feeling inspired. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I think. A, a big part of that and a big thing that got drilled into me in songwriting classes back when I was in music school was like universality. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Like you want to put enough into it that it's a specific story. Totally. But you don't want to put so much into it that it's not your listener's specific story. Totally. Yeah. And this is why like one of the things you see a lot of times is love songs rarely mention names. Yeah. Like, sometimes they do. Like, I was listening to More Than a Feeling the other day, and it's like, it always strikes me that there's just, like, about a person named Marianne. Yeah. I mean, I feel like the long, like, songs that use a person's name are usually, like, they can be yeah. obviously really good, but they're usually very, like, heavy-handed in a way. Like, they're so, yeah. so, so dramatic. I mean, I guess Jolene yeah. is a good one. Yeah, that's what uh, came to mind. Oh, Jolene's me. great. But yeah. there's amazing storytelling in that video, or in that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my I God. Think my brain is real. <laughs> <laughs> Everything a, is a video. <laughs> I've referred to so many podcast episodes as videos. Yeah. <laughs> oh. I, th I think I think an interesting example in this is one of the musicians working today who I think people would probably say is the most authentic, quote unquote, is someone like John Darnielle from the Mountain Goats. 
and he sings sure. very specifically. I mean, a lot of his stuff is about his life, but then he will also make up specific characters, but the perceived authenticity is still an aesthetic, you know? It is still a yeah. choice that the mountain goats are making to convey that authenticity. Like, it's yeah. not like it's not like John Danielle, he doesn't just, you know, sit down and write his thoughts out and play it. He works on that yeah. song. He adopts a certain vocal technique. Like he and the Mountain Goats will choose sequencing on an album and, you know, choose which songs make the cut and which songs are singles and stuff like that. But all all of that, and I don't think any of that strips away the the quote unquote authenticity of it all, right? No. And I think I think Jolena is a particularly interesting example of this for me, just because I think that Again, you you get a name in there, but it's very clear that Jolene is set up not as a person, but as an archetype. Yes. Absolutely. Right? Yeah, like, it's a metaphor you, for sure. The idea is that you know a Jolene. Yeah. Totally. You, you have a sense of like that sort of person and you can sort of project that onto whoever the Jolene is in your life. Totally. It's totally. you, Corey. You're the Jolene in my life. <laughs> yeah. Always stealing Noah's man. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Um, have you guys seen The Wire? I was just was just thinking about I this. Haven't. I haven't. I, I've been meaning to for a long time, but then they took it off Prime, and now I haven't. Oh my god! I really. It's it's well. I mean, uh, probably like a fifty million person to say that it's my. It's like the best TV show ever. But there's this great scene. Wait. Oh, it's actually not The Wire. It's Treme, which is made by David Simon. There's this great scene in Treme that I. That's it's set in like post Katrina. Oh, cool. New Orleans. New Orleans, yeah, and there's this amazing scene where there's so one of the main themes of the show is music and musicians and sort of like the sort of plights and journeys of these musicians in the show. Yeah. And there's this one scene where this like sort of up and coming or like aspiring musician goes to this concert and sees this like really really good band and so she thinks that the song is written about all of the effects that Katrina has had on the community and then I mean, you know, it's like obviously a formal sleight of hand, but her sort of mentor is like, oh yeah, that song was written like, you know, 10 years ago, like five years before the storm or something like that. But it's just such good songwriting yeah. that it can elicit the the feelings that it just, it's, you can't even tell. Yeah. It just seems like it just speaks to the moment, to the feelings so well that it doesn't, you can't tell that it was written before the storm happened or whatever. And I thought... That's really stuck with me as being like, wow, yeah, that's totally like what good songwriting is is all about. Like, yeah, it's leaving space for people to put their own stories in. Totally, exactly. But it comes from something real. This is yeah. where Corey goes into his Jackson, Bra their Jackson Brown uh, oh, example. I was actually going to talk Raging Against the Machine, but you know, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I think th this is a thing like not to cite Noah's videos, but on in Noah's Rage Against the Machine video, I believe you talked about where they leave this sort of open space yeah. for like killing in the name is very clearly about specific instances of police brutality, but it's also has this long section where they're just shouting you. I won't do yeah. what you tell me. Uh, and that people can just translate to anything. And that makes it a more powerful song, but it also makes it a more marketable song to bring this back a bit to markets and capitalism Yeah, is that that's, probably part of why that song and Rage Against the Machine were so successful as monetizable artists totally. is that people who didn't necessarily care about like Rodney King could still listen to this and hear 
Not that anyone should not care about Rodney King, to be clear, but people who didn't could still buy the album and think that it was talking about whatever their problems were. And this is the thing, like, you look at the names of some of their biggest songs, like, all of the names are very openly generic, you know? Yeah. Killing in the name, obviously. Take the power back is the most kind of, like, broad, know your enemy, wake up, Uh, freedom. Like, Yeah. yeah. And again, like, testify. They are very intentionally open and... I mean, this is the thing, too, is like Tom Morello has even said, yeah, that's the goal of Rage Against the Machine is you get people in with the big chorus and then maybe some of them get into the leftist lyrics. Right. Right. And that's still pop, you know, and there's nothing wrong with that. Getting people in with the big chorus is pop. It's playing the market and then it's using that, you know, if. Again, you know, if we believe that that is Tom Morello's actual secret plan instead of just something that sounds good, which, you know, I'm I'm willing to accept that that's at least part of what he's doing, but it becomes, it's playing the market, but it's playing the market for some ulterior motive, basically, but it still interacts with the market. Yeah. It has to interact with the capitalist market because again, art responds to culture and economics are part of culture. You know, even if it wasn't something that he was consciously thinking of, like, it's just sort of like a necessity, right? Like... Oh, yeah, absolutely. Even just this idea of like, you know, what what our sort of working definition of good songwriting was, it's sort of like yeah. very much based in something that, you know, it, it's it's impossible to sort of just divorce that from the incentive structure yeah. of capitalism. You know? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. If you want people to hear your music, you have to make the sorts of music people hear. Totally. And yeah. the sorts of music that people hear, the way that people hear music is fundamentally tied to the economy and capitalism, right? Yeah, Rage was distributed by major labels. Totally. Yeah. You can't, they they weren't distributed by major labels because those major labels love their leftist message. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I wish. That's a a hilarious, I just love that. Yeah. I just want to like follow that like fantasy and for like a while. (laughs) I just want to like do a whole like, I want to make like a TV show where that's the, an absurdist show where that's the setting. (laughs) I well and I think I think that's one of the really interesting things that's happening now with the dissolution of the kind of label system like we're entering this new era of how music is you know recorded and distributed but at the end of the day like even if you're not being pushed by labels we are all digital creators you know we know that there are things that you can do to get more clicks. And that's the exact same as someone who is releasing and promoting their album, you know, releasing their album on Spotify and promoting it on Twitter or releasing it on SoundCloud. Like, like there are things that they can do to market this. A great example of this, and you recently did a video on him as well, is like Lil Nas X is an absolute genius at marketing and branding and understanding the pop engine of the world we live in. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. It's an amazing spectacle. Uh, You know, economically successful artists just sort of like have to have this sort of whole package of being able to, you know, relate like their sort of musical aesthetic to their, you know, social media presence and like the way that they like dress and like the things that they say. It's like all, it's like very, I, I think I'm starting to see, you know, especially like, I think it's more no, maybe it just applies to everyone kind of more or less. Well, I don't know. I haven't really thought this through, but 
you know, it's kind of interesting to just sort of think of professional musicians as like performance artists almost like, or like, because it's all kind of this integrated thing where it's like all of the stuff is super considered. That's very much what, and and now, now comes the part of the podcast where Noah starts to talk about Bob Dylan. Like that's something that Bob (laughs) Dylan (laughs) throughout Bob Dylan's entire career. Like Dylan was pretty like, I'm sorry, who? He's Rob Zimmerman. Robert <laughs> yeah. Zimmerman? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but he was aware of himself as, he was aware of Bob Dylan existing as a character that yeah. he was selling to the audience and several oh, times totally. in his career. I mean, yeah. and the other example of this is David Bowie, right? Who, again, David Bowie, for some reason, doesn't get lumped as an inauthentic pop artist, even though everything he did, even his more experimental stuff, like even the Berlin Trilogy has Heroes, which is one of the greatest pop songs ever written. He understood that he was marketing himself, all of himself, like you said, like a performance artist, not just a musical artist. And that so kind of like looks forward to the, the age of marketing that we live in today. Yeah, I actually recently made a video about that, specifically in relation to David Bowie, um, Man Who Sold the World, I think is very much mm. about that phenomenon and about sort of, that's the reading I prefer. It's a vague enough song that you can put yeah. different meanings on it, mm. but that that's sort of the reading that I like and that I think speaks the most to me is that sort of like, you know, manufactured authenticity and the weight of that and how that can really feel, that can take a lot of the joy and passion out of making art. And mm. I think this comes to a thing digital content creators talk about a lot. I, I assume that like old old media people do too. The difference, so the separation between the art and the packaging. You and I, and like we all talk about this stuff in terms of thumbnails and titles, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think that for a lot of like creators, especially like educational creators, there's sort of this sense that, you know, you... You try to make the video as good and as authentic and as real as possible and make it valuable and put your heart and soul into it. And then you just come up with the most clickable title and thumbnail you can. And <laughs> yeah. that is just not really a part of the process. You just have to make it work. Totally. And this has been like a thing forever, for as long as art's been marketed, at least. Like we look at like album art, right? Like, well, totally. It's like the same That, same that thing. may be making a statement, but the, the big point of album art is that when you're walking through a record store, which people used to do, <laughs> you would just see this on the shelf and be like, I want that. Yeah. That yeah. speaks to me immediately totally. because you have one chance to get people to even bother listening to your music in the first place. That still applies to, you know, to Spotify and Apple Music now. Like, I've totally just, like, clicked on stuff because I'm like, whoa, that person's wearing a crazy outfit on their album cover. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I think the place it really applies is TikTok, right? Like, like TikTok is how careers are launched now. So people will package their song as part of a TikTok meme or even write songs that they know you can do a TikTok meme to, right? Yeah. And then that- Like Alex was talking about this when we had him on. Yeah. Where it just was uh, Olivia Rodrigo. Good For You was the one he was talking about. Anyway, there's just like very clearly like this big build to silence to drop that is just such a classic format for TikTok memes that it feels like it was probably made to become a TikTok meme. So interesting. It's still a good song. Well, I think this is like Olivia Rodrigo is so interesting because maybe you find it because of a meme. I mean, I found Olivia Rodrigo because of the Paramore mashup meme. Um, Yeah. But like 
you you find it because of a meme. And then this album is like by most metrics that we have used to describe like authenticity in the past. Like like this is somebody. This yeah. is a young girl singing her heart out about you know heartbreak and stuff like that, and seems very you know real and quote unquote authentic. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Absolutely. And it seems to, it's resonated with a lot of people. That album yeah. sold really well and won a yeah. lot of awards. Totally. It's a great album. Yeah. yeah, I think TikTok is kind of like the peak, whatever, complicated authenticity format now. Like it's like taken this whole thing to like a whole other level, right? Where like the content that typically does well on TikTok seems yeah. like spontaneous, you know? If it looks like you're trying too hard, you're almost like guaranteed yeah. to not succeed on TikTok. Yeah. And like... The likely, you know, like the likelihood that people who can the can crappy s- green screen effect that's like <laughs> the aesthetic of TikTok, which it works totally. I love it, but like you, you know, know, the idea that like somebody who has a you know who has a successful like consistent following on TikTok is just so spontaneously funny every single time they pick up their phone to like yeah. randomly make a TikTok is just so unrealistic. Like again, yeah. it's just like it's like the sort of new frontier of like yeah making it seem yeah. authentic and it's like it's not not authentic but it's also not like you know it's not like everyone is just like so miraculously like funny and good looking and yeah. effortless the thing that sort of fascinates me about tiktok and a lot of sort of digital media is production values yes yeah. like are you guys familiar with the the smosh principle it's a thing Hank Green has talked about. I believe he coined the name. Okay. But he was talking about the, the YouTube channel Smosh. What does Hank Green know about the internet? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the least, the least his, amount. His point was that like if you follow, if you look at Smosh across years, like they were for a long time one of the most popular YouTube channels ever. I don't know if they still are, but for a very long time, they were one of the biggest channels. And what they did really well was always be a little bit better than what average, what most people could do at the time. Right. Like they weren't just uploading like beautiful documentaries, like that would be like Ken Burns type stuff because that wasn't the format, that wasn't the medium, and it would have looked inauthentic. Totally. To sort of shove that on YouTube, and but like they they were doing vlogs with slightly better cameras and better editing, and then as that became more common, they stepped up their game again and started doing a bit more. And so they were always just a little bit ahead of the curve. Yeah. And that, I think, is sort of where that marketable authenticity really lies is at that point where you couldn't do that, but you feel like you could. Yeah. Yeah. And this, I think, to to bring it to music, this is something that I find fascinating about the White Stripes and like that whole garage rock movement, but especially like you listen to something, like especially their early albums. Yeah. And you're just like, that's just two friends hanging out and having fun. Totally. Or two siblings or a married couple, whatever, <laughs> yeah. you know. But <laughs> well, they call me, whatever they they're call currently Very similar things. Yeah. Well, for the White Stripes, it's complicated. But, um, <laughs> but yeah. And, and Jack White, though, is like, is one yeah. of these people that has such, his entire image is so carefully constructed, right? Like, yeah. like everything totally. he does. But like you said, it just sounds like yeah. they're just hanging out and doing the small stuff. But yeah, it's carefully constructed to just look like a chill dude. Totally. And, and he is, I mean, you see, he's kind of like gotten away from the chill dude because I don't think you can like yeah. be the chill dude thing. You, you can't do that when you've reached the levels that he has. Like, no. But I think he's an example of someone who 
constructed his authenticity every every step of the way to the point that the white stripes yeah. literally never wore anything not in a single white stripes live performance did they wear anything on stage that was not red white or black right like yeah. that is the ultimate yeah. in <clears throat> constructed aesthetic and identity totally yeah. oh, i love it well so and cool. speaking yeah. to your smosh effect that reminded me of and and this is another thing are you guys familiar with the channel answer in progress yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's Sabrina Cruz, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So their stuff, the whole team is incredible, but uh, early on it was just Sabrina's channel and she did like, you know, really she, she's an incredible like in general content creator, but like she's good at animation and she edits very well and her videos are well paced and to the point that there were conspiracy theories that she was corporate backed yeah. and inauthentic because she was just really good at what she did. Wow. wow. So fascinating. Yeah. I mean, I've always what suspected that Noah was a music industry plant too. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah totally. I am a music industry plant. Yeah, I totally. constantly talk about how much I love the music industry. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, that's the subterfuge, you know? Yeah. Because otherwise people would be on to you. I think one of the things that's interesting too, and this this kind of gets into like an Ouroboros eating its own tail sort of thing yep. where one of the things that's ghost notes baby. one of the emotions that you can manufacture to you know portray yourself as authentic is a hatred of manufactured things right like oh, totally. i think that's the big thing that happened with nirvana is that rock got yeah. to this point where it was so overtly manufactured and so nirvana and grunge manufactured this identity that that was counter to that you know but like yeah. at the end of the day like Kurt Cobain's one of his biggest influences was Zeppelin who were very many a big manufactured stage band like I think that's that's one of the things where and I think part of the reason why it happens so much in rock and roll is that from its earliest roots rock has been defined as being something countercultural. you know totally. yeah. so when it becomes, when something becomes the mainstream culture, and you see this with hip hop too, right? Like even punk to an extent, when something that has its roots in being countercultural becomes part of the mainstream culture, then suddenly they need to find something else to rage against. And what they tend to, like yeah. a lot of the time they rage against, oh, well, we're not, we're not actually mainstream. We're selling out arenas, you know, and getting multi-platinum yeah. records, but we're not mainstream. The mainstream is no. the top 40 pop. <laughs> yeah, no, like, yeah, it's like uh, growing up in like the 90s and early 2000s, like Nirvana and that whole movement that came after them was largely, and still is, I believe, largely labeled as alt-rock. Yeah, and yeah. yeah. You know, it was like the alternative to rock. And, you know, at the time when, like, they, they first came out, yeah, that, that was a significant reaction to, like, arena rock, and it was a different way of doing rock. Totally. Uh, doing rock music. But by, like, the early 2000s, no, it was not, you know? Yeah, totally. Yeah. I mean, it's, I feel like I'm, as I've been thinking about, like, a hyperpop sort of in the back of my head this whole time, and, and yeah. I wonder if, like, because hyperpop is totally, like, a, a countercultural genre. I would I would say that it's probably oh, yeah. just like the new version of it's like the twenty tens version of alt rock or or sorry yeah. the twenty twenties now. Yeah. <laughs> I've been on like well, a five day editing spree and my brain is like not anymore. We're like <laughs> it, it's not it's not it's only so just about it's not you. only twenty twenties. We're just about two years into the twenty twenties. Yeah, 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 yeah we totally. Will be by the time people hear this, <laughs> yeah. 
So, but what what I was thinking is that I I think that maybe because hyperpop I think sort of makes this question of authenticity yeah. sort of its central problem, and I think it's yeah. it's like interesting to think of a genre that sort of I mean, you know, telling the story about like alt rock and how it was a reaction to like arena rock, and then alt rock having its own sort of cognitive dissonance of being like you know something that is reacting against popular culture but is itself popular culture. And then like hyperpop comes along and it's sort of like the reaction yeah. to that, which is sort of being like embracing popular culture again. And this sort of self-awareness of, of being like this sort yeah. of like manufactured quote unquote. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's the same sort of idea, but in the opposite direction. Totally. I mean, it's like making a problem of that cognitive dissonance of being like yeah. a countercultural anti-pop pop music and it's so funny to think of how any how it's often perceived as inauthentic, you know, which is kind of like yeah. such a supreme irony, you know, especially when like it was first, like I think now it's kind of like, I mean, even now, but I think, you know, especially yeah. in like 2016, 17 or something when like Sophie was first like releasing her stuff, you know, there was that sort of like deluge of pitchfork articles being like, you know, is this a, is this a joke? Like PC music is yeah. the wink wink music or whatever. And the answer is, yeah, it, it's kind of a joke, but that's also the joke is serious too. Like, it's a real commentary. And well, it it's can like be both. it's funny, yeah, but it doesn't make it any yeah. less serious. Yeah, yeah. I think part of the thing too with like hyperpop, and especially why it appeals to Gen Z so much, is it is art made by and for people that you know grew up constantly observing themselves you know like like yeah, constantly so aware of the identity the quote-unquote authentic identity they were constructing right like that's what makes dorian electra yeah. so good right is dorian electra is so kind of like self-aware and then finds yeah. this authenticity in constructing that identity right like they're like it's they're so like meta. yeah these are all constructed identities and I love these these identities that I've constructed yeah. for myself. Totally. That's yeah, it's so it's so awesome. And just like the world is getting so dizzyingly complicated and layered. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. I don't know if I can handle any more layers. <laughs> I don't know. It's like the reaction to the reaction yeah. to the reaction. It's like what's coming next? I don't know. Yeah. I'm just gonna yeah. retire. Ra- just going down the rabbit I'm just hole. Hang up the skates. Yeah, you're definitely seeing a lot of just like why does art have to make sense? Which, you know, is, is like has historical precedent. You know, you go back to like the, the post-war mid-war periods where like people were just like the world, I mean, to borrow a quote from Hamilton, which was not talking about this time period, but the world turned upside down. And it was suddenly like, and that's where you see movements like the Dadaists, where yep. it's just like, what if we just like did weird stuff what if instead of doing normal stuff, we just did stuff that was weird? Totally. And I think that love me some Hannah. You're seeing Hulk. that now as a way of sort of just being like, you know, the the world we live in is so complicated and weird and exists at so many different layers of messed up at the same time. Why should our music be straightforward and, you know, understandable? Totally. Why shouldn't we just do like a super fast, weird song about meeting a stupid horse, you know? Yeah. 
What's why is that any more weird than you know totally being alive in 2020, 2021, 20, whatever year it is? Yeah, yeah, whatever year it is. It'll be a different year by the time you listen to this, too. So, who knows? That gets to a point that I, I wanted to make about authenticity, too, where like our construction of authenticity, especially in music, is usually about like you know a couple very specific you know, emotional experiences, you know, it's like, it's like yeah. raw sadness and stuff like that, where it's like people like criticize Beyonce as not being authentic. I, I, I'm pretty sure Beyonce absolutely loves yeah. to dance and authentically loves oh, yeah. making oh music God, yeah. you can dance to. Right. Like, and, and yeah. that's the same with like, like stupid horse is just authentically get posting, you know, yeah, it's fun. I, <laughs> totally. Yeah, yeah. Doing a video right now about blister in the sun by the violent femmes. And that's, sort of a similar argument to what I'm making there is like, you, you know, that that song's sort of a magnet for secret meanings, right? Like people have all yeah. these theories about what it's really about. Yeah. And as far as I can tell, and as far as like Gordon Gano, who wrote the song, says, it's about basically nothing. It's just yeah. goofing off, having fun. I actually had Noah record that quote. So now I have a recording of Noah saying that lyrics aren't that interesting that I can yes. use whenever I want. <laughs> <Black> <laughs> really, yeah. Yeah, I think also, like, I mean, I also think about, like, nihilism right now or sort of, like, you know, I think another thing about hyperpop that really speaks to people right now is that it's so debaucherous, really, you know? Like, it's really about, like, having fun and um, being sort of, like, uncomplicated in a way. And I think, you know, given the sort of state of the world and the you know, yeah. sort of doom that is, you know, just ambiently, constantly present. It also yeah. makes sense that it, you know, that people really respond to it, like that there's this sort of just like people just want to be able to just like yeah. have lighthearted fun, you know, which I think is great. And, yeah. And to bring this back to like capitalism and get in trouble one last time, I think that a lot of the way that especially like modern, like neoliberal hyper capitalism works it has this like constant push towards productivity and the grind yeah. that makes people sort of inherently uncomfortable with the idea of just of things that don't have a point yes right totally. things that aren't saying something that don't aren't serving some purpose and so, so true. things that can't we want be to monetized. find meaning in art yeah and so it, that sort of makes just making doing stuff for fun almost countercultural in and of yeah, itself yeah. which well, then again can then be packaged by cultural forces to sell. But <laughs> yeah. yeah. To use a quote, not by an, a hyperpop artist, but Idols literally released an amazing punk album called Joy as an Act of Resistance, right? Yeah. Totally, totally. Yeah, and I think and, that that's, which, which again, like, like I said, will then turn around and be marketed and sold as well because, yep. you know, we can't just have things. No, but definitely not. Because we live in a society. <laughs> That's what we that's do the last last time I checked yeah. in a society. <laughs> it's the last thing that we can have is just have yeah. these things. <laughs> yeah. Uh. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, on that, I think we've ran, I mean, as per usual in Ghost Notes, we've diverted a lot, but this has been a really, really fantastic yeah. conversation. Did you have anything totally so more fun. that you wanted to say, Sarah? No, I think we've basically solved all of the world's Capitalism. problems, actually. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> Uh, For it's sure. been an eventful hour. Thank yeah. you. Good yep. job. Very we did it, gang. We Good did work. It. Yeah. Authentically. Cheers all around. <laughs> Sending yeah. you a high five. And uh, uh, yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. 
thank you so much for coming on and uh, plug yourself. Where can people find you? Right. Well, they can find me at Sounds Good Channel, just like youtube.com slash Sounds Good Channel. And I'm also on Twitter and Instagram under the same name. And if they really like what I do and they want to help me continue to do it, I also have a Patreon that they can find me at, which is also Sounds Good Channel. Speaking of authenticity and self-marketing, ending the podcast <laughs> with a plug. <laughs> oh, 100%. This yeah. is the world we live in, baby. Totally. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know where to find me and Corey. Yeah. Here. Hopefully. Nowhere. It's hopefully yeah. gone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you don't, you have some serious problems. Yeah. <laughs> you probably want to get that checked. <laughs> real nowhere man living in our nowhere land. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Sarah. This was a really, really great conversation. And yeah, hopefully yeah. we'll have you back someday in the future. I'd love to be back. Yeah, thank you. Thank you guys so much. It was it was an absolute blast. Yeah, this one was really fun. Bye. Bye. Bye.